This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about Operation Glowing Symphony and um, counterterrorism operations, I guess you could call it that. There have been some interesting documents that have been uncovered and released, so we wanted to tease out some of the information within them and talk about this operation. So today we have Michael Martell on the show, and he is going to discuss that's this really interesting topic with us. So thank you for coming on the Loopcast, Michael. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, Michael is the inaugural Cyber Vault Fellow, which sounds very, very interesting, <laughs> at the National Security Archives. He's been doing this as of June 1st, 2018, so he's been in this position for a while. And he also received his MA in Security Policy Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs in spring of 2018. And his focus was defense analysis and transnational security threats. So he will bring this expertise into this topic as well. So why don't we start off with just discussing some background on Operation Glowing Symphony and actually the documents. So what is or are the sources for Operation Glowing Symphony? Excuse me, it's a tongue twister when you say it too quickly. And why don't we talk about why the documents are so important? Sure. So the sources that I've been working with have been Freedom of Information Act declassified primary sources from U.S. Cybercom, which at that point was a subcomponent of Strategic Command, but is now a, a full combatant command in its own right. I do want to say that there have been some other you know, sources of information out of this. Some interviews have been given to NPR as a podcast called Darknet Diaries that has an interview with a participant. But what I'm going to be talking about today is going to be limited to these primary source documents that have come out through Freedom of Information Act. And those are requests that were filed by us, as well as Joseph Cox from Vice's Motherboard. I want to make sure he gets credit. The documents are interesting because... From this declassification, this is actually, at least to my knowledge, the first official U.S. government acknowledgement of an offensive cyber operation. Uh, and anyone who's sort of grown up or, or, you know, come into this field in the post-Snowden era or even, you know, pre-Snowden, that's, that's quite a big moment. What Glowing Symphony was was an attempt to degrade and, if possible, disable the – internet-enabled networks that ISIS was using to produce these propaganda films, this recruitment campaign that everyone has been familiar with. And the, the documents show some challenges that, that come from that operation, coming from scale, and also from the fact that it was tasked to uh, a relatively young command, U.S. Cyber Command. What are the goals of Operation Glowing Symphony as described in the documents? So it was to degrade and deny uh, ISIS' ability to operate in cyberspace, specifically with respect to their ability to produce propaganda and you know, conduct uh, recruitment campaigns. Well, what's important to kind of keep in mind for context is Glowing Symphony was executed by a group called Joint Task Force Ares. And Joint Task Force Ares was the Cybercom Joint Task Force to counter ISIS. And Joint Task Force Ares is doing a lot of things at that time. And, and we can tell because we have some of the foundational documents from Joint Task Force Ares to include operations with direct battlefield effect. A lot of those operations still remain classified. So it's important to remember that Glowing Symphony was a component of the counter ISIS strategy online. The specific component was to combat propaganda, combat recruitment, and the way that they did that was by sort of mapping uh, the network of, for example, on-the-ground producers, people who are actually, you know, the cameramen on the ground producing these propaganda videos. As that went up to the editors, as the editors then put it out to people who dissented 
disseminated this information. All of this was occurring networked and online and was something that could be disrupted online. And so that was that was the goal of this operation. And you mentioned that's part of the Joint Terrorism Task Force Command. So who exactly do we know was involved in this since it's a joint initiative? It's right. not so in, the United in, States. It, well, so in, in this context, joint means the services, right? So Marines, Army, uh, Navy, Air Force. Initially, Joint Task Force Ares was headed up by Army Cyber, which was actually at the time commanded by General Nakasone, who's now the head of Cybercom in the NSA. And, and so within this context, joint just means you know multiple branches. And that, that tends to be how Cybercom operates. There was definitely a combined joint element to this, right? That as you go through the documents, you start to see uh, mentions of coalition partners' participation. But within the context of these documents, joint means multiple branches within the military. So why don't we discuss some of the documents in the sense of what they tell us about the complexity of managing and developing operations in cyberspace, because this is... A big task, if you think about it, especially looking at ISIS and everything that they did produce and all of the different cogs and wheels that were involved. It it really is, uh, I think, the most interesting part of these documents. Um, Because if you just think about how secure ISIS was online, well, not not particularly secure, right? The, The U.S. has demonstrated its ability to hit single targets that are much harder to crack than an ISIS media server, right? Where this gets really difficult, though, is uh, what I sort of perceive as the horizontal scale, right? Um, So if you think of something like Stuxnet, that requires a lot of vertical capability. It requires, in one particular place, in one particular instance, an incredible amount of really exquisite capability to crack that nut. In this case, it was not a lot of exquisite capability per target, but it's a lot of targets across a wide area and across a large amount of time. And critically, it's a lot of targets that other partners are also operating on. And so deconfliction winds up being a big concern. What was actually a huge concern is, uh, or was, a question of what to do if ISIS media is being hosted in partner country uh, servers, right? Um, initially, the plan was to not notify these countries and just to take it down. And this it was initially reported uh, by the Washington Post, Ellen Nakashima, that this actually, the disagreement that came out of this within the National Security Council actually delayed the operation by, I think, two months. And the, the solution that came out of that was that they were, in fact, going to notify host countries that ISIS data was being hosted on servers in their country and that Cybercom would like to go in and take out those servers or or conduct operations on those servers. And so it wound up being actually a a very politically complex question. It was also complex in terms of deconflicting what the Joint Task Force wanted to do on the networks with what the overall um, intelligence community wanted to do. Oftentimes, if you're going to brick a network, which is or brick a server, which is sort of a, a slang way of saying turn it into a brick, you might actually be taking out a server that somebody else is relying on for SIGIN, right, for signals intelligence. Um, and so with, with all these different uh, actors having equities in this operation, the main challenge here was not sort of what what we typically perceive of in cybersecurity, which is, you know, can you pop that box? Can you break this encryption? Can you get onto the server? It was, okay, now you can get onto the server, but what are the political implications of doing this thing you want to do on it, and how do you navigate that minefield? And so this is really a maturation for U.S. Cyber Command to go through all these processes. Um, And in some of these documents, they say right at the beginning, you know, we have processes for this, but they are immature. And we expect this operation to allow us to mature these processes and for us to come out of it a more capable command. Do the documents get into any of the legal ramifications of having operations in cyberspace that, as you said, could potentially take down servers in partner countries, so to speak? They don't get into the strict legal ramifications, so I, I kind of wish they did. The sense I get is that those conversations are being held at a different level. It's sort of the National Security Council uh, approval level, I should say. What they do get into, though, is sort of the operational requirements, where these legal concerns sort of get um, enshrined within DOD doctrine. Uh, 
and how they're navigating those. And there, there are some interesting things that come out of their their experience with navigating DOD doctrine with offensive cyber operations. For example, they were finding that when a combatant commander, so for example, this would be you know someone in CENTCOM, is nominating a target for action to U.S. Cyber Command, CENTCOM has to go through a certain target vetting process. And there's there's all sorts of reasons for every step here that have to do with deconfliction and legal requirements and all of this. Once that process was done and they sent it up to Cyber Command, Cyber Command had to go through their own target vetting process, which in many ways was redundant to the one CENTCOM had just gone through. And this was imposing uh, a time cost on these operations. And when it comes to operating in Cyber Command, targets can change and move very quickly. And so this was really a big challenge for the command. And they had to start recognizing that, you know, some of these targeting procedures that we have really aren't up to the reality that we're facing. And so I found that to be particularly interesting. And again, the documents show that they were anticipating challenges like this and almost looking forward to the chance to refine these processes. And just to be clear for our listeners, can you define what targeting means in this context? Because in the broader CT literature and lingo, it, it means something completely different. Right. So, so targeting in this case sort of comes out of, honestly, the, the DOD's slight obsession with precision strike. In fact, in a lot of uh, DOD documents, cyber operations are defined as a form of fires, which I find amusing. Essentially, what this means is this target is cleared for attack or is cleared for some sort of effects. Electronic warfare kind of falls into this as well. It's nomination for offensive action is what it means. And there's an element of how time critical the target is, but a lot of it is justification, either operate, actually not either, but operationally and legally and within the authorities of what the military force has been told to do or authorized to do. And so there's there's a, a lot of oversight and a lot of feedback that goes through this targeting process. And a lot of the, the rules and guidelines for the joint force to conduct uh, these targeting processes have their roots in, you know, legal definitions of what a valid target is, how the U.S. chooses to conduct operations with regards to acceptable collateral damage. But a lot of times this is in ways that doesn't really lend itself particularly well to the non-kinetic space. So, for example, if um, if a targeting evaluation is told to, to you know, find all the – excuse me. If, if the, the targeting evaluation is expected to find – unexpected second order or third order effects from an action. Well, if you're dropping a bomb, that's relatively easy to do. If you are hitting a communication node that sits within a communication network that you don't have 100% intelligence on, well, that's really hard to do. And it's so hard to do that it might actually preclude you from conducting that operation in a way that's somewhat unrealistic, right? I guess you could... The argument that I've seen out of CyberCom documents is by applying kinetic standards for targeting assessment to non-kinetic operations that you wind up scoping out a lot of what should be valid non-kinetic operations. And so these were all challenges that Glowing Symphony and I would assume Joint Task Force Aries as a whole were trying to sort of figure out. There was another posting we did that was – the briefing slides within U.S. Cybercom discussing the DOD targeting process. And on one of the final slides, one of the recommendations was to learn from the counter-ISIS mission to alter the joint publication on the targeting process, which I found was really interesting, to take the single mission, learn from it, and alter the overall Department of Defense doctrine. When we talk about targets and specifically the ISIS targets, are we talking more of, on a wider scale like the servers, as you mentioned earlier, or were, were individual accounts targeted by Glowing Symphony? It sounds like all of the above. Just for, for context, uh, I think it's important to know that the way the DOD conceives of the information space is in three layers. There's the, the persona layer. These are the, the, the individuals and sort of their 
particular impact or their particular presence online. There's a logical layer, which is, you know, software and there's a physical layer which is the, the underlying infrastructure and and targets can exist on any of those three right so it could be a physical server where they're noting you know a centrality of isis data and they might want to you know brick that server like i said just make it useless encrypt the entire thing just replace it all with random ones and zeros and eliminate all that data it could be attacking social media accounts that was certainly something that was done it could also be and and it's important to remember that this operation didn't exist only in cyberspace it could be gathering intelligence off of those social media networks and passing it on to somebody else for action there are documents that mention coordination with the operations in Mosul, and it doesn't take a, a great leap of imagination to to conceive of the possibility that Glowing Symphony was tracking, you know, propaganda, you know, camera operators, passing that on to ground forces in Missoula for targeting and having them be prosecuted kinetically on the ground based on targeting information that came out of cyberspace. There's also the possibility, and actually I think this was confirmed in a panel, uh, that Glowing Symphony could have learned who was enabling propaganda operations, passing that on to Treasury for sanctions. Right. And so I think this is something that could potentially be somewhat unique in how the U.S. conducts operations in cyberspace, which is to bring this sort of whole of nation approach where sometimes the information you pull out of cyberspace is better acted on in another arena. But that still carries a massive amount of value. Do the documents tell us anything about how specific targets were selected? It doesn't, no. There are some redacted portions where I believe that's what's behind the, the whited out box, but nothing specifically, no. And how does Glowing Symphony, the operation itself, or those looking at it from more of a analytical view in the government and military, how was success determined or assessed, or was it even? Because I know that there are issues in the broader counterterrorism field of assessing what some of our counterterrorism measures actually do in the long run. Yeah, and there seems to be quite a bit of disagreement over this. Sort of, some some have somewhat famously initially thought that there were going to be cyber bombs dropped against ISIS, and then were later disappointed. Uh, I would argue that was maybe a failure of, of expectations. There was a little bit of pushback from the intelligence community in terms of overall uh, effectiveness. What the documents themselves, and mind you, these are written by the people who are conducting the operation, so you know, assume all due bias there. The assessment was that they assessed time and resource constraints on the ISIS media network. And so that just means things took longer, things cost more. There can be a side debate had over whether that's worthwhile. What I tend to think reading this is I'm not sure if you are up against an adversary who is reliant on Internet media such as ISIS was. I'm not sure you can afford to confront them and not also confront them online. And so it, it, I, I've noticed some of the arguments around Glowing Symphony after documents started to come out was, you know, is, is Cybercom, is this mission worth conducting? I think these days I think it's inevitable. I think you have to conduct this mission. Hopefully as more details come out, we can start to split hairs and see if there were, you know, risks that should have been taken or risks that should not have been taken. But overall, Cybercom assessed that, that it succeeded in forcing ISIS to take more time to put out uh, lower quality of products. Some have observed the, the decline in ISIS periodicals, the decline in ISIS propaganda. You could also attribute that, frankly, to battlefield attrition. And so it, it is difficult to draw a straight line to Operation Glowing Symphony. I think overall, though, and, and this is this is, I think, why Glowing Symphony has significance beyond just the counter-ISIS field of study. The number of groups or the number of adversaries to the U.S. which are incorporating media activity or online activity or propaganda or disinformation, what have you, is only growing. And it, it sort of um, stretches the imagination to think that we could be countering them without something like Glowing Symphony. And so I think the overall effectiveness of Glowing Symphony is interesting. 
But I think what's more interesting is the challenges they face and the capabilities they found they need to do it. Uh, because I frankly don't think we have, I don't think we've developed a credible alternative. What would you say in your opinion the documents reveal about how the U.S. wages these information warfare campaigns. And as you said, looking at Growing Symphony, it potentially can be applied to future cases. More than potentially. Uh, General Nakasone um, specifically cited Joint Task Force areas as inspiration for the Russia small group which I think is really interesting um, in, in this era of, you know, quote unquote, great power competition that we're learning from the counter ISIS mission to counter Russia. It's just there, there's, there's endless fascination to be had there. I think I also mentioned uh, earlier sort of the, the whole interagency component that's supported here. I think what can be drawn from this case study is that Cyber or offensive cyber operations can be a multiplier on other efforts. Several have argued that you know, cyber is unlikely to be a decisive effort, but it can be a shaping effort. I think that here, the U.S. was not going to defeat ISIS in cyberspace alone, right? It was going to require activities in other arenas. But those activities in other re- arenas were empowered by what Cybercom was doing. I mentioned, you know, enabling kinetic targeting through intelligence gathering in cyberspace, enabling sanctions to, you know, apply pressure to individuals. I think that should be, or could be, I should say, because I'm trying not to recommend as much as I can. I think this could be a model for how the U.S. conducts information operations in the future, which is to enable and empower a whole-of-government approach. When you look at it that way, this is just an intelligence operation, right? And we have frameworks and ways of thinking about it if we approach it from that angle. We've used two different terms in this discussion, and we've used information warfare and then information operations. And I was wondering if we could tease out the two, if they're one and the same, slightly different for our listeners. Why don't we talk about that? That's a really fuzzy boundary. And especially these days, it depends a lot on how you conceive of warfare. Let's first define the information domain as compared to the cyber domain. Um, the information domain, and this is going to be really broad because there are disagreements, frankly. The Russians and the Chinese define this differently than the U.S. does. But within the U.S., it is actions like cyber operations, electronic operations, like or, or operations in the electromagnetic spectrum to include electronic warfare, electronic countermeasures, electronic support measures, SIGINT, PSYOPs, uh, deception, Anything that is targeting an adversary's decision-making or sense-making process is an information operation. Now, at what point an information operation crosses into information warfare is up for all sorts of debate, especially on Twitter. (laughs) I tend to think that it crosses over – the point at which it crosses over is a political decision rather than a a strict operational threshold, meaning if politically we decide we are at a state of war, then it is information warfare as opposed to an information operation. Now, when you go over to to the Russian side, to the Chinese side, they might be more inclined to include things like American support to pro-democracy groups. They might consider that to be a form of information warfare. That gets us into a weird place where they think we've already attacked them in the information space, they counter and do something to us, like the campaign around the 2016 election, and now we think they punched us first, but they think they're punching back when we punch them first. And so these these different definitions get us to these places where no one really agrees where we are on the escalation ladder. Where cyber falls into all this is as a component of the information space as you know anyone may define it when it comes to how u.s cybercom is approaching it as as initially outlined u.s cybercom is strictly cyber operations it's interesting now though to watch some of the branches i think army was one of the first ones to start doing this navy really got it never really got away from this which was incorporating things like electronic warfare into their models of cyber or information warfare and so it'll be interesting to see 
how Cyber Command is a combatant command, which is staffed or manned and equipped from these branch communities. If Cyber Command starts to open itself up to more of uh, what the U.S. in the 90s considered information operations or what Russia and China sort of scopes it as now. There are numerous political debates that could go around that, um, whether that's a good thing, whether we want the military getting into strategic deception in that way. There are some, some rabbit holes to go down. But it's interesting to see within Glowing Symphony just what was capable within strictly cyber operations that were, frankly, strategically information operations. They were able to affect deception through uh, computer networks, for example. They were, a- they were able to promote confusion within computer networks, which sort of speaks to what's possible within cyberspace these days and how much information operations in cyberspace are, are strongly overlapping. How would you say that the execution of Operation Glowing Symphony reflects the structure and the state of NATSEC in general, or NATSEC bureaucracy, we could even say, here in the States, and maybe even elsewhere? Because as you said, this, yes, is a a stateside operation, but it involved numerous actors and potentially uh, partners, excuse me. So by stateside operation, you mean U.S. undertook it rather than it was targeting stateside targets, correct? Okay. I think the level of bureaucracy here or the the, the, – let's say the the complexity and due diligence here is unique, especially if you've been watching – or or following stories in cyberspace over the last 10, 20 years, which is frankly dominated by stories of Russian, Chinese, North Korean, Iranian hackers, right? And it it sort of takes on this, you know, the the, the Ministry of State Security has a small little group of cowboys, and they're told to go, and they can act quickly, and they're incredibly risk tolerant, and, you know, sort of all these things that we've sort of taken as, as truths from what the other side does. And what that sort of you know the, the the other side of that coin is well the U.S. is less risk tolerant and prone to self paralysis. I think what Glowing Symphony demonstrates though is that there is actually value to plugging into this overall bureaucracy. You get to then conduct a combined operation with other countries. You get to go to other countries and say, hey, there's this target that's actually within your borders. We would like you to act on it instead. Right? That's a force multiplier. It allows you to more effectively pass on targeting information to kinetic operators. It allows you to pass on information up to sanctions in a way that sort of this lone cowboy hacker motif doesn't. And so this might be uniquely American, or I guess it might be better to say uniquely Western in in how we conduct cyber operations. I'm not entirely certain that it's such a bad thing. I think there's obviously trade-offs. We certainly demonstrated that we're not able to respond as quickly, although with you know changing strategies in cyberspace, persistent engagement, and the way we're we're changing how we're authorizing operations, that might that might even out. But the U.S. cyber operations um, community seems to be tied into or or able to call on non-cyber tools more readily, and that's a good thing especially since the, those tools that they can draw on are in arenas and we have fairly unquestioned dominance. Briefly touched on Operation Glowing Symphony, or at least the concept of it being used in other contexts. So I wanted to talk about how reproducible it is in different contexts. So can it be applied to a smaller level, somewhere at the civilian level or small actors, not a group like ISIS, which had many avenues, especially in the online world, and then also bigger actors like adversary states. And and we have talked about Russia and China has popped up in this discussion, and even the thought of Iran with a lot of cyber operations that Iran has conducted. So why don't we tease out a little bit how reproducible Glowing Symphony is for future operations, potentially smaller scale or even larger scale? I've 
heard that question more often about the larger scale actor. Uh, the, the question about the smaller scale actor is interesting. I wonder if you could maybe give me an example of what kind of actor you'd be thinking of. Why don't we use the example like a, a bigger state, so Russia or Iran? As an example of a smaller scale actor? No, as an example of a larger scale actor. Yeah, so the, well, I guess I'll start with the larger scale actor, but I, I want to pull on the thread of the smaller actor and sort of what example you might have in mind there, because I think there are a few ways to take that. With the larger scale actor, if you look at how they tend to operate in cyberspace with a certain amount of deniability, especially when it comes to uh, their disinformation campaigns, right? So if you look at how Russia was operating during, during or before the 2016 election, it was certainly incorporating you know, more official networks, but a lot of the the you know the the more I don't want to say evil, but the the more I guess what we'd say out of bounds activities were being done by deniable groups. So you get things like Guccifer 2.0, you get all of these sort of sock puppet accounts and sock puppets pages. Those are conducting them, the conducting their operations in a way that isn't that dissimilar from what ISIS was doing. Right? They're not actually acting as a conventional state-backed body. There certainly was a component to that. But the counters have a lot to do with each other. Now, we're not going to be, you know, doxing, you know, IRA operators and then passing it over to JSOC for a strike, obviously. But they could pass it up to Treasury for sanctions, right? So that's that process of feeding it into the interagency for whole-of-government pressure, I think, still holds. The other challenge of working across that horizontal scale that that I mentioned is also present, right? The the Russian uh, disinformation network doesn't just operate on Russian and American networks. It operates all around the world. And so that notification problem, again, raises its head. And that's something that – or a process that was evolved coming from Glowing Symphony. The main difference, as I see it, is the overall escalation capability, right? Or the overall escalation willingness. The mission against ISIS was total physical eradication. And so all of your operations are going to be with that in mind. A mission to counter Russia is not total physical eradication. And so that does change the context somewhat. But I'm not sure how much it actually changes the context of how operations on computer networks are are conducted. There's going to be a fear of, you know, catching someone's tripwire in cyberspace, you know, hitting some target that, you know, the GRU deems as unacceptable. And so the GRU then hits one or another one, and we're in this tit for tat. But a lot of the research has been suggesting it's act- that that's actually fairly unlikely. And it's kind of hard to envision a scenario where, you know, the U.S. takes down an IRA server and the GRU says, you know what, that does it. We're taking down the power on the Atlantic seaboard. That would that would be a, a strange uh, bit of calculus. So I think that there is quite a lot of overlap when it's this sort of low-level uh, cyber operation. It does start to break down at those higher levels of escalation, but those higher levels of escalation were a part of joint task force areas that we haven't really seen yet. And maybe on a smaller scale, I'm just trying to think of an example, and I don't have a specific example that comes to mind, but idea of conglomerates of people that are potentially involved in operations against the state, but at a very low level, so hacker groups or something like that along those lines. Sure. Thing that I, could be applied, I, or is it way too complicated for a small scale? It, like It could be applied, but I think we already have a model for that, right? The FBI has been operating in cyberspace. Excuse me. The FBI has been operating in cyberspace against lone wolves, trying to conduct sort of undercover operations on forums and the like. I think those models have actually been developed and matured to a certain extent within a domestic law enforcement context. It'll be interesting to see which model wins out when we're looking at countering or engaging with small groups in other countries. Cybercom is you know, going out to, to partner in allied countries and helping them uh, develop cyber defense capability. But you know what? The FBI does that too. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, say over the next decade, how that problem, how that problem set shakes itself out. 
And in your opinion, what do you find as a researcher that's been looking at these documents, the most interesting part of what the Glowing Symphony documents reveal or aspects of the documents or the operation? So th- this gives me an opportunity to an opportunity to get into my favorite page of these documents. And this is page 15 of the U.S. Cybercom 120-day assessment of Operation Glowing Symphony. It is mostly redacted, but there's some interesting stuff in there that we can theorize about, and all the theories point to a conclusion that I'll get to. The document mentions that an adversary exploited this opportunity, and that's a direct quote. And that's interesting because everywhere else in the documents, ISIS is referred to as ISIS, or actually more specifically as ISIL. So the fact that we're using adversary suggests, you know, to to quote from internet meme culture, player three has entered the game. And there are a whole bunch of things that this could be. This could be someone who was on ISIS networks watching U.S. operations. This could be somebody who exploited maybe an an internal threat or, you know, a, a leak. But the conclusion is nothing in cyberspace is a two-player game. There's always somebody who's going to be watching something. There's always somebody who's going to be trying to get a measure of your tool set, especially if you're operating on target networks like ISIS, which the U.S. was, which the U.S. had declared to be networks of interest, which the U.S. had. And if you were a country like uh, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, what have you, and you want to see U.S. Cybercom's capability, that would be a really good opportunity to start putting surveillance implants on networks that you anticipate being Cybercom targets. This is never going to be a two-player game. And that's something that I think sort of alters the risk calculus and sort of alters how we view this as political scientists. If you're coming out of the, the kinetic you know, the kinetic warfare study, most of it is dyadic, even if the wars aren't. But there's still, you know, side A, side B in a given engagement. And yes, the rest of the world is observing, but that's less important. That's less relevant here. Well, here, everyone's on the battlefield and everyone's observing it live. And everyone's going to be taking certain things away from that. And some of those things they're taking away from that could actually be the tools you're using. And so that means, you know, you could be uh, giving up specific TTPs, you know, tactics and procedures. You could be giving up uh, specific implants. You could be allowing somebody to get an idea of how you operate to uh, masquerade as you in their own operations. This starts getting into this really cloak and dagger space. And as soon as you start getting more, as soon as you start operating more offensively, on networks that you don't have complete visibility over, which if they're not yours, you don't have complete visibility over them as sort of a generality, you start running a lot of these risks. I hope someday we get to see what's behind those redactions, but what comes through already poses some really interesting questions about what other adversaries see when you're striking um, at the intended one. Also on that note, do we know if private companies, so different companies for platforms online, are they involved in Glowing Symphony to some extent for deep platforming or providing information? So I don't know how much that that certainly happened. I don't know how much that was directly tied into Glowing Symphony or how much that was tied into the rest of the interagency process. The State Department certainly had uh, its own, you know, uh, campaign uh, for counter messaging. The the interagency overall was trying to engage with with the platforms to you know set content regulations. I'm not sure how much that stemmed directly from Glowing Symphony. From these documents, I don't get a sense that a whole lot of it did. I think they were a component of this overall interagency campaign. But I do actually want to bring up and, and this is sort of bring up my last point and uh, folding it into your your comment about private corporations. Private corporations play a role here too in terms of imposing risk on an attacker. And I, I would draw attention to uh, a Kaspersky report that came to be known as Slingshot. And it's for debate now is to 
how much Kaspersky recognized about the the malware that they were, you know, b- sort of blowing the whistle on, wound up being a U.S. special operations implant known as Slingshot. And so what essentially occurred was a, a private cybersecurity firm, Kaspersky, burned a U.S. counterterror operation, which raises all sorts of questions, again, for uh, the risks and, and where the risks come from when you're operating offensively at this scale. So there, there's obviously relevance from from the private sector when it comes to them being you know the the, the service providers for a lot of these functions that uh, we're concerned about but there's also you know just endpoint security providers who might not necessarily know that this malware they've caught is a government counterterror operation or as some have argued they do know and they they don't care and wind up burning that operation so there's there's just all sorts of intricacies that come from operating in this fashion and how does the U.S. tread the line of dealing with companies because there are a lot of social media online platform companies that are not U.S. companies? So we're having U.S. government military operations and potentially dealing with non-U.S. corporations. How has that worked out? A lot of that winds up, from what I can tell, um, in the Glowing Symphony case, sort of got laundered through the government notification process. So if, you know, if, if we see that there's ISIS media in, you know, country A's server and that server is being maintained by a certain company, Glowing Symphony would go through State Department to, you know, bring this up with that, com- with that country and figure out how to operate on it. From what I can tell in the documents, in some cases, Glowing Symphony operators themselves would hit it. In other cases, the host country would say, thanks, we got it, we're going to do it. And so it, it seemed to have varied case by case. When it comes to U.S. service providers, it's hard to tell from these documents. I would say that there is a rich body of study and literature just in counter disinformation. I think probably gets at that a little better than I can. And there's, you know, this sort of growing history as a result of, you know, countering terrorist content and countering the sort of thing that we saw in 2016 that brought a lot of these companies to a new level of realization over what's occurring on their platforms and differing levels of, of assessment of what their responsibility might be. But that's been a long process that predates Going Symphony by quite a stretch. My other question is we still do have a strong presence of ISIS online and on the ground to an extent. So is there continued operations under the Glowing Symphony umbrella that we know of, or is there a second operation that we just might not know of at this point? So we don't know if Glowing Symphony is continuing. We do know Joint Task Force Ares still exists. And then on that, do we do we look at this as a short-term counterterrorism operation, or could we look at Glowing Symphony in the context of ISIS as producing long-term effects? Because I always have a debate with myself when it comes to counterterrorism measures across the board of how much are we doing this just for the short-term impact where some of the operations we do really don't have a long-term, a long-term yeah. effect, as you could say, because you're almost dealing with the the actual things taking place versus the causes that cause the effects that are taking place. Sure. I think to get at that question, we have to view Glowing Symphony within the context of Operation Inherent Resolve overall, which is what it was framed as, right? You know, you trace through the documents. First document we have, um, the first Cybercom document we have is the operations order to provide cyber support to Operation Inherent Resolve. That produces the need for Joint Task Force Ares, and out of that comes out Glowing Symphony. All of this is supporting Operation Inherent Resolve. And so this wasn't meant to be a standalone counterterror operation. It's meant to be supporting this overall effort. And I think that's something that's important to remember about cyber operations overall. There's sort of this this propensity these days to think, you know, the 
the the rack and stack defense doesn't matter anymore because w- countries are just going to wage war over computer networks and uh, you can achieve decisive action with uh, cyber effects. Well, maybe someday, but we don't seem to be we don't seem to be there yet. Cyber operations in and of themselves are going to be fairly limited. And if you look at the most the most effective or even the most famous cyber operations, they've been either in conjunction with something in another in arena in another arena or in support of something in another arena. All of Chinese uh, espionage is supporting industrial development, or it's supporting their intelligence communities, sense making, or their knowledge of the American populace. The Russian operations around 2016 were coupled with, you know, fairly old school media manipulation, right? So the, this this idea that you know just hacking something is going to achieve decisive effect, I just don't think we've seen that. What Glowing Symphony does is I think it falls within uh, you know what we've seen historically. It was in conjunction with activities in other arenas, in some cases bringing effects that the other the other tools could not bring themselves, in other cases multiplying the effects that the other tools are bringing. But it's a piece of a whole, and I think that's what's important to take out of this. And it also, frankly, demonstrates the utility of a lot of these what at first look might feel to be cumbersome requirements or cumbersome deconfliction and coordination requirements, but they're there to enable this multiplicative effect of offensive cyber operations. If Glowing Symphony, you know, just went bull in a China shop on ISIS networks, started operating on allied servers and, and alienating them, started burning intelligence uh, gathering efforts by U.S. intelligence agencies or partner nation intelligence agencies, I'm not sure we would have come out ahead of where we were on day zero. I think you can pretty strongly argue that the overall OIR effort at the end of Glowing Symphony, whenever that may have been, was ahead of where it was when it started. What's difficult to determine is how much of that progress is attributable directly to OIR. And this, now we're, we wind up arguing counterfactuals, right? What would it have looked like if we hadn't uh, been operating in cyberspace? Again, I argue when an adversary is as dependent on Internet media as ISIS was, I'm not sure you can afford to not be operating on computer networks. That makes complete sense, especially, like you said, if the adversary has a huge presence on computer networks. We like to give our guests the moment to maybe touch upon something that we haven't discussed in the in the conversation, if time permits. And we'd really love to give you that opportunity if there's something that you really would like to discuss that we haven't or a final point. So I want to pass over the the floor to you. I think I may have made this point already without directly making it, but I'll go ahead and directly make it. There is a propensity within the U.S. national security community to take counter-terror operations like Inherent Resolve and sort of put them in the counter-terror bucket, put them in the counter-insurgency bucket, this is the non-state actor, and ignore lessons learned as they turn and face a state actor. Now, on one hand, that's silly because we were repeatedly coming up against non-state actors, but that's a separate conversation. There are an immense number of lessons to be learned from this that can be applied to engaging state actors in cyberspace. I think it is commendable that U.S. Cyber Command seems to have realized that from the beginning and recognized that the distinctions are, are not so clear especially with the, the you know, deniable way that states tend to operate in cyberspace or, or in overall gray zone operations. But I think it's important that uh, students of security recognize that as well early on in their studies. Glowing Symphony and Joint Task Force Series overall was – and is a case study in cyber warfare. If you believe cyber warfare is a thing, this is a case study in cyber warfare. This is the first publicly acknowledged case study in American cyber warfare. 
and if you view it in that light, this is actually a, a watershed moment. I mean, this is, you know, this uh, this is planes flying off a carrier for the first time. In the past, our offensive cyber operations have come out of, you know, incredibly secret intelligence agencies. This comes out of U.S. Cybercom, who's fielding our FOIA requests and giving us the execute orders and the operation orders and the after-action reports. This is pretty incredible, and it's it's a pretty big moment in U.S. national security history. We get an opportunity to discuss covert capabilities in a public fashion without a single leak, which after the last decade or so in, in cybersecurity history is pretty incredible. And to conclude the talk, what would you say, in your opinion, is the biggest takeaway and the biggest lessons learned from Glowing Symphony that can be used in the future? The value of uh, cyber operations to an interagency whole of government pressure campaign is undeniable. Um, especially if you view, you know, cyber operations as part of, you know, a, a covert intelligence campaign. If you would imagine, you know, doing a whole of government pressure uh, campaign on an adversary without the support of the intelligence community, that would be silly. I think it would be just as silly these days to do something without supporting operations in cyberspace. Also that, you know, you, you can hear, you often hear rhetoric, and this isn't unique to cyberspace. Um, you hear rhetoric from folks who say, well, you know, we, we're too slow, there's too much vetting, and, and in some cases there was, right? We mentioned that there was um, sort of redundant target vetting between the combatant command, the, the regional combatant commands and glowing symphony operators. But a lot of these, you know, the, the, a lot of these bureaucratic processes exist for a reason, and that reason is to enable and empower the interagency, right? The goal here is not just to brick someone's server. The goal is to put pressure on and or defeat someone politically. And the link between taking out someone's server or stealing their data and defeating them politically is that interagency process. And I think that almost more than, you know, what backdoors or what malware or what exploits someone's using, how it plugs into the overall interagency strategy is more important in my mind than sort of the, the nitty gritty uh, stuff that you might see at a hacking convention, for example. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Michael, to discuss Operation Glowing Symphony and these really interesting and important documents and sharing your thoughts and your knowledge on this. Yeah, thank you guys.